If you would, please open your Bibles up to Acts chapter 1. Book of Acts chapter 1. It's good to see you tonight. We are in week 5 of our Life in the Spirit series. Tonight we're going to be talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The scene here in Acts chapter 1 is that this takes place right after the resurrection of Jesus, and yet before his ascension up into heaven. And Jesus is meeting here one last time with his disciples, and he's going to instruct them in something that is going to be essential for them to carry out the mission that he has given to them to go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. In order for them to do that, they're going to have to pay really close attention and walk in obedience to what he is sharing with them here. And we're going to pick this up in verse 4 of Acts chapter 1. It says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them. Everybody say commanded. So I want you to know this isn't a suggestion from Jesus. This was a command. This is important. He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. Now, he's referencing something that's very, very important for us to catch and understand that this was referred to. He calls it the promise of the Father. And in Luke chapter 24, verse 49, this is what Jesus, this is what Jesus is referring to that he had shared with them. He says, behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So this promise of the, whole, the, of the Father would be connected to the ministry of the Holy Spirit coming upon the disciples. So Jesus had, had already prepped them prior to his or excuse me, after his uh, resurrection. He had already prepped them for this, and now he's laying it out, and he says, um, for John, verse 5, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And I want you to note that they're still thinking at this time, even after the cross and the resurrection and all that Jesus has taught them, they're still thinking earthly. Are you going to set up your kingdom? Are you coming as, as the Messiah? Verse 7, and he said to them, it's not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Pause there and let me have your attention. So there was a lumberjack who 
would work out in the forest and he's cutting down trees and he had, you know, one of those uh, hand saws that you would, those big long ones and he'd put it on the tree and he would, you know, do this and he was strong and, and he could cut down about five good sized trees with that hand saw. But he saw an ad in the paper and the ad in the paper uh, promised that you would be able to cut down 15 trees with this new saw. So he went down to the hardware store and he bought it. But after a few days, he was so frustrated because he could only cut down two trees with this brand new saw. And with his old saw, he could cut down five. And so he brought it back to the hardware store and said to the owner, he said, you know, hey, something's wrong with your saw because I can only cut down two trees with this thing. And with my old hand saw, I could cut down five. Well, the owner said, well, let me check that out. Let me see what's going on. And he walked over to the saw and he pulled the cord, and it went, and the lumberjack jumped back. And he's like, what is that? You see, he didn't know that he had bought a chainsaw, and he was out there trying to, you know, (laughs) cut down his trees with that saw. And he wasn't using the power source that was available to him. Well, we as believers often make the same mistake. We want to walk with the Lord and be used by the Lord, but so often we do so without the power provided for us and to us by the Lord. You know, the key verse in the passage that we just read is verse 8. He says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, I want you to notice that he says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. In other words, they didn't have this power before. They were, they were lacking this. They didn't have the power to do what Jesus had called them to do. And if the disciples didn't do as Jesus instructed to go in Jerusalem and to wait, they would have failed miserably in the mission that Jesus had had given to them. That they would have failed miserably trying to win the world in their own strength. Well, tonight we're going to be looking at this empowering of the Holy Spirit that Jesus refers to. And I want to begin by discussing that the Bible tells us that there's a threefold relationship that the Holy Spirit has with followers of Jesus Christ. And so I want you to keep your place here and turn to John chapter 14, where we have two of these three aspects and relationship of the Holy Spirit mentioned for us. So just turn a few pages over to John chapter 14. And there in verse 15, we see that Jesus says, if you love me, Keep my commandments. Now that's kind of a daunting command right there, isn't it? To keep his commandments. We, we, we need help. And thank God there is help. He says, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. If you've been with us in our series, we've looked at this verse several times. And then he says this in verse 17. 
The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, catch this, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Here we see the first two relationships that the Holy Spirit has with us as followers of Jesus Christ. Notice Jesus says that he will be with you, with you. The word in the Greek there is para, and it means beside you. And the Holy Spirit was with them because the Holy Spirit was in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is with us prior to our coming to know the Lord. And we we looked at this a few weeks ago, that, that the work that the Holy Spirit plays in drawing us to Jesus. Remember we saw that it said that the Holy Spirit, his job is to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And so that's that work that he does in seeking to draw us into a relationship with Jesus Christ. He's with the unbeliever seeking to pull him and convict him of his sin and draw him into that relationship with Jesus. But then Jesus says, and he shall be in you. And this is a whole different word he uses. It's the word in the Greek, it's en in, and it speaks of the indwelling. And this is what happens after you open your heart to the gospel and embrace Jesus. Jesus comes to live inside of your life, inside of your heart, by his Holy Spirit. And notice there in verse 17, Jesus says, he shall be. He's with you right now. He's telling his disciples, he's with you now, but he shall be in you. So here's the question, when did this happen to the disciples? Well, keep turning in your Bible now to John chapter 20. In John chapter 20, this is now after the resurrection. The disciples are kind of hiding out for fear of of the religious leaders in an upper room. And it says in verse 19, then the same day being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood in their midst, and he said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed him his hands and his side. He wants them to know, look, I'm not a ghost. This is really me. Look at the wounds in my hand. Look at the wounds in my side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw him. It's like they're realizing it's true. He's risen from the dead. And so Jesus said to them, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. It was at this moment that the disciples were born again. Remember Jesus said in John chapter 3, said to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Well, this moment is when the disciples were born again. No one was born again prior to Jesus dying on the cross, because in order for somebody to be born again, their sins had to be forgiven. And so no one was born again until Jesus died on the cross, and then three days later rose again from the dead. And so they see him now and they believe that he is risen, that he's alive. And Jesus says, receive you the Holy Spirit. And he blows on them. And when Jesus says, receive you the Holy Spirit, that's what happens. You receive the Holy Spirit. And at this moment, they were indwelt with the Holy Spirit. 
But here's what's interesting. If you turn back now to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus introduces this third aspect in our relationship with the Holy Spirit. So we have, he's with us prior to being saved. He comes, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us after we give our lives to Jesus. And then here in Acts chapter 1, the verses that we read, we see this third aspect. As Jesus said, I want you to go into Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. Whole different word. The word upon in the Greek is epi. It's ep, epi. And it's, notice the, the reason that we're told in verse 8 for this coming upon, he will come upon you for this purpose, to empower you to be my witnesses. So here's these three aspects. There's with, para, pre-conversion, He's with us, convicting us, drawing us. There's, he, the, then when we give our lives to Christ, he comes in us. The, the E-N, and, and, and the, where he's coming in, inside to indwell us after our, our conversion, that indwelling. And then we have this third aspect here in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that he's going to come upon us, E-P, to empower us for service. And I also want you to notice that Jesus called this, in verse 5, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is where we get that terminology. The baptism of the Holy Spirit. Notice he says there, John baptized you with water. And they knew that. John the Baptist had, and when they were, were baptized in water, they were immersed. John took them and he immersed them. It was a full immersion into the water. John baptized you with water, but not many days from now, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You know, oftentimes I'll ask people, hey, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? And I'll have people say to me, yeah, Pastor Rob, don't you remember? You baptized me in, you know, 1998 down at the harbor at the beach. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. That's water baptism. Or they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, I, you, you baptized me right there in the pool in the church, you know, in 2018. No, 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 that's not what we're, what we're talking about. That's water baptism. And listen closely. Water baptism is something that you do. It's a decision that you make. Water baptism is something that you do to identify yourself as a follower of Jesus. Water baptism is the outward declaration that you are a follower of Jesus and that he has done a work in your heart. Water baptism symbolizes a death and a resurrection. So when we take you and, and we, you know, hold you and we put you down under the water and we hold you there for like five minutes and, and uh, no, just kidding. Um, we hold you there really quick. But, you know, it symbolizes a burial. And then when we pull you up, it's, it's symbolizing a, a resurrection. And we pray almost every time that as you're coming up out of that water, that the Holy Spirit would empower you to walk in that newness of life. That's water baptism. It's something that you do. But listen, don't miss this. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that Jesus does to you. That's the difference. It's something he does 
to you as he's empowering you with his Holy Spirit. He causes the Holy Spirit to come upon you in order to empower you so that you can serve him. And I want you to think about this. Think about the disciples. The disciples were with Jesus, trained by Jesus, discipled by Jesus. They spent almost 24-7 with him for three years. So we could safely say that the disciples had the best training that you could get, ever get, for ministry, right? Better than any seminary, better than any Bible school. You can't get any better than having Jesus be the one who's training you. Everybody agree with me? If you agree with me that, please raise your hand, okay? If you don't have your hand up, something's wrong with you right now, right? Okay? But here's what's interesting, After spending three years in that training, they still needed something. They weren't ready yet. They weren't ready to go out and fulfill the mission that Jesus had given to them. There was something else that was needed. They needed this empowering of the Holy Spirit. And note that the baptism of the Holy Spirit, when we're, people ask, well, what is that exactly? What, is, what does that mean? Does that mean I, I get more of the Holy Spirit? No, no, no. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not you getting more of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit getting more of you. And I love this analogy, especially because we live by the ocean. You could go down to the ocean today. And you could go and, and, or tomorrow, and you could go and you could put your feet in the ocean. And you could say, you know, I was in the ocean today. And that wouldn't be a lie, right? You, you were in the ocean. Your feet were in the ocean. You could say the ocean had me today. But did it really? I mean, you could move and you could walk. You could walk in and out. You know, you could go up to your knees and, and say, you know, I was in the ocean today. Yep, you sure were, you know, up to your knees. No one else knew that, but, you know, I was taking pictures. I saw you, you know. You, you could say that. But you couldn't say that well, the ocean had me. No, the ocean doesn't have you until you are in over your head. That's when it has you. And that's the idea with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, it's not us getting uh, more of the Holy Spirit, but it's, it's the Holy Spirit having us, getting all of us. Or I love this analogy. It's if you've ever been sailing, I have a friend who has a sailboat. Sometimes he'll take us out on his boat. And, and it's interesting because we'll be down in the bay in San Diego and we're cruising around and he'll have the sail just opened a little tiny bit. The wind's just catching a little bit of his sail, and we're just kind of cruising along. But when all of a sudden it's getting late and he wants to get in, you know, what does he do? He opens up that sail to where the same amount of wind is catching now all of the sail. And that's the idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not you getting more of the Holy Spirit, but it's the Holy Spirit getting more of you. Why do I say it's not you getting more of him? You have him. He's in you. You have all of the Holy Spirit that there is to have because he's inside of you. But the question is, does the Holy Spirit have all of you? In the sense, is he in control of your life? Is he leading your life? Are you you in submission to him? So 
We see this example, okay? The, the Holy Spirit indwells them in John 20. Then Jesus tells them in Acts 1, hey, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. Let's see when that happens to the disciples. Look at Acts chapter 2. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, I want you to notice a few things about this scene. First of all, number one, the disciples were in the right place. Jesus told them to go and wait in Jerusalem, and that's what they were doing. They were living in Jerusalem. They were waiting just like he told them to do. Number two, they had the right motive. He says, I want you to go and wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you for this reason, so he can empower you so that you can better serve me. He's going to empower you, Jesus said, to be my witnesses. So they were in the right place. They had the right motive. They wanted to be empowered. And number three, they had the right heart. It says, notice, and they were all with one accord. So there was a unity amongst them as they were gathered. And I point this out because sometimes people want to be empowered by the Holy Spirit for the wrong reasons. People are like, in certain you know, type of church settings, it's like, man, I want that empowering because I want to stand out. I want people to notice me. In fact, we see this in Acts chapter 8. There's the, the Holy Spirit falls upon the people in Samaria, and something happens to them that it's noticeable that, that they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. And Simon the sorcerer, who had, who had gotten saved, comes to the apostles and says, you know, hey, can I buy that? That's a great trick, you know? That's a great, that's a great thing. I, I want to be able to do that to, to, to people. Can I buy that? He was wanting the, the, the empowering of the Holy Spirit for the wrong reasons. And a lot of people do that today. They, they want, you know, oh, pray for me because I, I want this ministry, or I want that, or I want it. And it's all about them. That's not what this is about. This is about making us more usable to God and for God. Notice also sometimes uh, people are not walking in obedience. They have unconfessed sin in their life and compromise in their life and rebellion in their life. And there's no point in them asking to be empowered by the Holy Spirit until that gets taken care of. Because Jesus, you know, he wants us to be uh, vessels of honor that he can work through. Sometimes people have bitterness that they're harboring. They're not in one accord. They're harboring bitterness toward others. And all of that, we looked at this a few weeks ago, it can quench or grieve the Holy Spirit. And when we're quenching and grieving the Holy Spirit, it's like we're cutting off the flow of him being able to, to work in our lives. So it's important to notice that they were in the right place, they were in obedience, that they had the right motive, they wanted to, to be used, they wanted to be able to fulfill their mission, and they had the right hearts. Now I also want you to notice there in chapter 2 verse 4 that Luke uses the term that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So catch this. 
He calls it the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and he calls it being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I point this out because we'll see in a few other times in the book of Acts that in in reference to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's referred to as this being filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's the coming upon, the baptism, and being filled is all speaking of the same thing, that empowering of the Holy Spirit. In fact, let me give you an example, another example in Acts 4, verse 31, if you want to just turn over there for a minute. This is a time when persecution is coming upon the church, and they come together to pray. And notice in verse 31, it says, and when they prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now, this is a key insight here that I want you to catch. Because this is the same group that was in Acts chapter 2. And now we see them again, almost similar. You know, Acts 2, there's a mighty rushing wind. And, and here there's a, uh, the place, there's a shaking that happens in the place physically where they're at. But it says again, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And this tells us, don't miss this, that being baptized with the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit is not a one-time occurrence. In fact, Paul taught in Ephesians chapter 5, he's talking about our spiritual walk. He says we need to walk in wisdom And then he's going to talk about what it looks like to walk in wisdom in your marriage. It's what it looks like to walk in wisdom in your life as a parent. What it looks like to walk in wisdom as an employee and an employer. And then he's going to segue into talking about spiritual warfare and how we need to stand strong, not in our power, but in the power of the Lord. But in the midst of this, before he starts getting specific about how we're to walk in wisdom, he says this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore do not be unwise... But understand what the will of the Lord is. You want to know God's will? Here's part of where it is. Understand what the Lord's will is. Remember, Jesus commanded, not a a suggestion, a command. This is part of God's will, and this is what he says. Verse 18. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And literally, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, if you want to later write this in your Bible, make a note, it literally reads this way, be continually being filled. Not a one-time thing, but it's a daily thing. This is a command. This is the will of God. That we would understand that in order for us to be the husbands, the wives, the parents, the Christians that God has called us to be, we cannot do it in our own strength. I hope you realize that. We need his daily help. We need his daily empowerment. This really is the mindset of my favorite beatitude. It's the first of all the beatitudes. In in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? To be poor in spirit means to realize your utter dependency upon Jesus for everything. It's John 15. It's, without me, you can do nothing. 
But I want you to see this. Put, put that verse back up if you, if you would for a minute there. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want you to think about this. Those who are poor in spirit, those who recognize their utter dependency upon Jesus for everything, what's happening? They're opening up the door. When it says theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he's not just talking about heaven. Jesus in the, talking to the, uh, in the Beatitudes was talking to his disciples. He wasn't talking to the unbelievers when he preached that. He was talking to his disciples. So when he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, this is how I read that. Jesus is the king of heaven. And what he's saying is that when we assume in our daily lives an attitude of being poor in spirit, realizing our utter dependency upon him for everything, what we're in doing is we're unlocking all the resources of King Jesus. That's what I mean by theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's coming to that place. That's what Paul's talking about there in Ephesians 5. That's what Jesus was was wanting to get his disciples to understand there in Acts 2. This is what's going to happen when you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, when you realize your continual need to be filled is I'm going to meet you with power and strength to be and do who I've called you to be and do. Two more things that I want us to point out. Turn back to Acts chapter 2 before we move on. I want you to notice that when this happened to the disciples, it says that there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. I want you to note that. It doesn't say there was a wind. There was a sound of a mighty rushing wind. This is what's going to draw the crowd. They hear this rumbling. They hear this sound going on. And there were cloven tongues of fire above their heads. So think this 120, Acts chapter 2 takes place. There's 120 followers of Jesus meeting in this upper room. That's the size of us here tonight. They're meeting in this room, and all of a sudden there's this sound. They're hearing a sound of wind, and all of a sudden above all their heads is this tongue of fire. Imagine that. You're like looking across, you know, what the heck is, it's on you too, you know? And and this, there's like this, Fire above, they're almost getting burned, but it's like this tongue of fire above everybody's head. And this is what I want you to catch. This is the only time this happens in the book of Acts. So why did it happen? I believe that this happened to them because the Lord wanted it to be super obvious to all of them, you're being baptized with the Holy Spirit right now. This is what I told you was going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you to empower you, and that's what's happening in this moment. It doesn't happen again in the entire book of Acts, but the results happen over and over again. What were the results? The results was power, boldness. Because we see, as, the, as Acts chapter 2 goes on, we see Peter who about 40 days before this is sitting around a fire when Jesus is being tried and some you know, little servant girls are like, weren't you one of his disciples? No, I don't, I don't even know him. Another one says, no, 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 you're, you're a Galilean. Your accent betrays you. You're, you're one of his followers. No, 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 I don't. Another one. No, 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 I, I, sure, I saw you. And then he starts cussing. No, I swear to you, I don't know the man. And then the rooster crows. So 40 days before, 
around a small little group of girls, Peter's denying that he even knows Jesus. But on the day of Pentecost, he's empowered by the Holy Spirit, and he's going to stand up before 3,000 people and preach a radical message and be so bold as to say, you guys crucified the Messiah. That's the difference. That's the difference that takes place in Peter's life and the, and the rest of the disciples is that there is a boldness that suddenly they have. The same guys who on the day when Jesus was being tried, they fled. They fled in fear, are now standing in boldness against the very religious leaders who put Jesus on the cross. That's what we see in the remainder of the book of Acts. But there's something else that happened that day that's mentioned a few times in the book of Acts, and it's this. We read there that they spoke in tongues. This happened in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. It happens again in Acts chapter 11, or Acts chapter 10, when Peter's at the home of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, there in Caesarea Philippi. And Peter goes to preach to them. And they end up believing in Jesus. And in that moment, they are also baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they all start, the whole, the whole, all these Gentiles, they start speaking in tongues. It happens again in Acts chapter 19 with a group of men that Paul meets in the, day of, in, in the city of Ephesus. They get baptized with the Holy Spirit and they all start speaking in tongues Again, and so each time, each one of those instances, we see that the Holy Spirit accompanied the recipients of those who were baptized in the Holy Spirit, that it was accompanied by them speaking in tongues. But here's what's interesting. Tongues is not accompanying, it's not seen accompanying the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 8 in Samaria, nor in Acts chapter 9. When Paul himself, when he's Saul of Tarsus, when he gets saved and he gets baptized with the Holy Spirit, he doesn't speak in tongues. What's the point? Speaking in tongues is a sign. It can be a sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not the sign. And it's important that you realize that. Now, Paul, we know because he'll tell us in 1 Corinthians 14, we're going to get into this in, in, in our next two studies, Paul ends up speaking in tongues. But it didn't happen, at least the scriptures don't point out that it happened, the day that he received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That was my experience as well. The day that I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I did not speak in tongues. But I can tell you what did happen to me. I all of a sudden had a hunger to study God's word like I never did before. And I had a boldness to share with other people about Jesus that I never had before. That was the evidence in my life that I had been baptized with the Holy Spirit. I'd been prayed for, and then suddenly, like the very next day, it's like, man, I just wanted to read my Bible like I never read before, and it didn't go away. And I had this boldness. Greg Laurie talks about that, that when he was baptized with the Holy Spirit, he didn't speak in tongues either. But he suddenly had a boldness to, to evangelize and talk to people about Jesus and to do it with results. In fact, in Greg's life, he would testify that he didn't receive his gift of evangelism, and he's like an amazing evangelist, until he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. That came. 
that, that gifting to share the gospel with results. Here's my point. If you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit, you'll know it. Something happens. There's an evidence. For the apostles, their lives were marked by a boldness, and they spoke in tongues. In fact, on the day of Pentecost, them speaking in tongues was another sign with the mighty rushing, the sound of the mighty rushing wind and the cloven tongues of fire. Tongues was another sign to the disciples that this is what was happening to them. And God used them speaking in tongues to reach the crowd. Look back at Acts chapter 2, verse 5. It says, are you guys with me? Are you following me? Okay. It's making sense? All right. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, now we don't know if this is the sound of the wind or them all speaking in tongues. There's only 120 of them. I think it might be both. When the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. So let me pause there for a minute. Remember, this is the day of Pentecost. And at Pentecost, Pentecost was one of the three Jewish feasts. Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles were the three feasts that Jewish men were required to go to. And so they would come from all over the Middle East to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts. And a lot of times they'd bring their whole families. It was like a family vacation, you know, and we're going to go for a family camp and we're going to have this, you know, time and we're going to celebrate these feasts. So, so you have all of these Jewish people that have come from all over the Middle East and they've, they've moved to these different places where they speak these other languages, and they come to Jerusalem and they hear this rumbling and they go to this house where these 120 are gathered and they're all speaking in tongues and these people are hearing them speak in their language from where they are from. And the text tells us where they're from. Notice verse seven, it says, then they were all amazed and mar- marveled saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? Now, why is that important? Because the Galileans were known as the uneducated group, okay? They were the remedial group. They weren't the smart people. They weren't the learned people. So it was like, you know, here's all these Galileans, like, but they're speaking like perfectly our language. How is this happening? In verse, verse 8, how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and, and those dwelling in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and, and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome. This is a vast group. Get, later on, take, take your map out and look at it. This is a vast group. Proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, verse 11. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Like, what in the world is going on here? How can these unlearned guys be speaking perfectly our language? And then verse 13 says, and others mocking said, oh, they're drunk. I've never seen a, a, a drunk person perfectly speak another language. I'm sorry. You know? <laughs> I 
it's like the stupidest thing. Oh, they're just drunk, you know. That's what happens. You get really smart when you get drunk, you know. <laughs> Come on. Notice this, though. Some Bible teachers, and I want you to hear me on this, especially ones that teach that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are not for today. Remember, we talked about them in our first study, cessationists. They're the ones who say, oh, the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit ceased. That's where you get the idea of cessationist. They, they ceased when we got the whole Bible. They say, those guys who want to deny miracles, deny the moving of the Holy Spirit, they say that this is what was happening on this day, that these disciples were all preaching the gospel in different languages. That's what was happening here. I disagree with that, and here's why. If they were all preaching the gospel in tongues, then there would not have been a need for Peter to preach his sermon. They could have just said, okay, we're hearing what you guys are saying. What do we need to do to be saved? That's what they said when Peter, at the end of Peter's sermon, okay, what do we need to do to be saved? No, the text tells us that they were not preaching, but praising. Look at verse 11. It says, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. The idea that they were declaring the wonderful works of God, or they were giving praise to God. Now listen, this correlates with what Paul said, and we're going to get into this more next week, in the next two weeks. But this correlates with what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14 about the gift of tongues. Paul said this, when a person is speaking in tongues, they're not speaking to men, but to God. The message of tongues, in other words, is not horizontal, it's vertical. It's directed towards God. So that's why, and again, we'll get into this a little more, when we're talking about the interpretation of tongues, that the interpretation is not going to be a, thus says the Lord, oh my people, you know, some word, word of knowledge or prophecy. It's going to be a word of praise, or it's going to be a form of prayer. It's going to be directed towards God. God. These guys are speaking the wonderful works of God. Paul referred to this as praying in the Spirit and singing in the Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So the gift of tongues is a personal prayer language or a praise language that can assist the believer in his walk with Jesus. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 14 that one speaks in tongues. He doesn't edify the church, but he edifies himself. It builds him up. So that's why it's primarily meant, the gift of tongues, to be done in private. And Paul, again, makes that very clear in 1 Corinthians 14, that in the congregation, he says that tongues should only be accompanied, should always be accompanied with the interpretation of tongues, how do we know if somebody has the gift of interpretation? We ask. There's a tongue. We pause and say, okay, we're going to wait and see if somebody has the interpretation. At our last um, magnify night, somebody spoke in tongues, and Pastor Aaron had a beautiful interpretation of that. And Paul says, this is interesting, that there should only be one or two, or two or three at the most. Like it's to be regulated, it's not like everybody just mash speaking in tongues. So again, what happens on the day of Pentecost was also unique. 
But the Lord was using it to let them know, hey, this is, what, this is the promise of the Father. This is what I shared with you was going to happen. And so he had the sound of the wind, cloven tongues of fire. They're all speaking in tongues, perfectly speaking all of these other languages that draws these people together so that Peter can preach Jesus to them and they end up, 3,000 of them, end up getting saved. You know, for me personally, I didn't receive the gift of tongues when I first got saved, but I did later. So I prayed for it, and you know, my mom was like, hey, you need to pray. This, this, this will be good for you. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, I don't pray in tongues every day. I usually pray in tongues when I find myself in a place when I just feel like I don't have words. That's when I'm led and moved to pray in tongues. Or I might sing or praise in tongues in times when I just am overwhelmed with the Lord. You ever get that way? You're just like, it's just overwhelmed. It's like, I have no human words. Like, if I were to say, God, you're awesome, it'd be, it just isn't enough. And so it's in those times that I'll find myself just, just praising him in that gift of tongues, in that, that prayer language. So I pointed this all, out, all this out to say this. That tongues can be, the gift of tongues, receiving the gift of tongues, can be a sign, but it's not the sign of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. I would argue that the sign of the evidence of being baptized with the Holy Spirit is a boldness. And that's what we see in the apostles. This is what we really see in the book of Acts, that the, the major change that we see in the followers of Jesus in the book of Acts is a boldness to share Jesus and to live for Jesus. Tongues is secondary at best. It's not actually seen that much in the book of, of Acts. Preaching and sharing Jesus is the focus, and it's the advancement of the gospel through the people of God who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's the focal point. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit and and living lives daily dependent upon the Holy Spirit is what propelled the early church to change their world. So let's wrap this up. How does one receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Well, you need the right motive. You need to know what it's for, to empower you to live for Jesus, to serve Jesus. You need to be in the right place, meaning that you're not living in rebellion or compromise in your life because sin, our sin and rebellion, grieves the Holy Spirit, quenches the Holy Spirit. And the third thing is you just ask. And this is the beauty of this. Jesus, in Luke chapter 11 is teaching his disciples about prayer and the Holy Spirit. And he says this. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Okay? Remember, Jesus called this the promise of the Father, right? Our God is a God who keeps his promises. How many of you have ever broken a promise to one of your kids? Okay, I have. Broken promise to my grandkids, broken promises to my wife. God never breaks his promises. And he calls this the promise of the Father. So Jesus is teaching about prayer. He says, hey, ask and it will be given. Now, now most of you know, 
when Jesus is teaching here and he uses the word ask, seek, and knock, it's all in the present continual sense. So he's saying, I want you to keep on asking, I want you to keep on knocking, and I want you to keep on seeking. In other words, if you don't, if you don't experience, if you don't get an answer the first time, keep going after it. You know, our God is never, ever bothered by our persistence. He actually enjoys it. I can honestly say, I'll be honest, confession tonight, I can get bothered by my grandson's persistence. Poppy, Poppy, please, Poppy, Poppy, can we do it? Like, ah, you know. God's never that way. In fact, he enjoys it. Because when we're persistent, it communicates an attitude of dependency. It communicates, Lord, I, I'm telling you, I, I can't do this without you. So Jesus says, you keep on knocking, keep on seeking, keep on asking. Verse 11, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? The answer is no. And then Jesus says, if you then being evil, and the idea there is, he's not insulting, but he's saying, look, in comparison to God, we're evil. If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give, what? The Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So what do you do, you ask? You say, Lord, I recognize, I, I, I can't do this on my own. I can't be the witness. I can't be the parent. I can't be that I'm supposed to be without your empowerment. Lord, I need you to baptize me. I need you to fill me. I need you to, the Holy Spirit to come upon me. However you want to say it. It's recognizing that. Now, I want you to notice one more thing. The disciples went into Jerusalem to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. We're no longer waiting for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's been given. But we do wait on the Holy Spirit. That's why sometimes we have to keep asking and keep knocking and keep seeking. It's, it's adopting that poor in spirit attitude. And as we come to him, and as we seek him in that way, he wants to empower us. 